Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare for the message? Father, we are thirsty, and we come to you. And many in our congregation are sick and hurting and broken, and we ask that you would be for them what we are unable to be, that you would provide hope, encouragement, and strength. Turn our eyes to you, and by your spirit, I pray that we would be convicted of our sin and repentant and also joyous in the fact that we can come to you and the fact that we live with you, that we have eternity to spend with you, to look forward to. For those among us in our community who are shut in, who are afraid, who are alone, would you help us to be your hands and feet? Would you help us to provide encouragement and love? I pray that as we read today and as Josh preaches and as we continue to sing, that you would be glorified, that our eyes and our hearts would be opened, that you would provide us understanding so that we can respond in love and allegiance to you. Amen. Reading today from the 25th chapter of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. We'll be reading verses 19 through the end of the chapter. The birth of Esau and Jacob. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel of Aramean, and Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire to the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
It's so good to be with you. It feels like it's been a long time because it has. Um, we were out with illness for a few weeks, and then last week I was at uh, a church in Red Deer uh, preaching there, and I'm just so grateful that God has blessed us uh, with such wonderful uh, teachers here. Um, there was a time when I would be very worried if I was not here, and it's so good that God has blessed us with elders that can teach. We uh, go through the Bible verse by verse here uh, for the predominant uh, amount of time for our messages, and if you're visiting with us, we have been going through Genesis. Uh, We're in chapter 25. We've just finished the life of Abraham, and there we saw the blessing of God continually poured out on Abraham and his family. Whatever they would do, God would turn it for good. Such was his promise of blessing upon them. And now our text this morning has this incredible interplay between this inscrutable power of God to do whatever he has promised and the actions of the humans to which he has in part revealed himself. The sovereign blessings of God have already been promised unconditionally to Isaac, Abraham's son, and to his offspring after him. But now they must learn to rely on God in everything. One of the interesting things we see even as this passage and the narrative about Jacob develops is the way that even the self-serving attitude of Jacob results in the purposes of God being fulfilled. And so at the beginning, verse 19 to 20, uh, it tells us that unlike the way Abraham uh, handled the situation of his wife's barrenness, Isaac prayed to the Lord because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So like Abraham's wife, Sarah, his daughter-in-law, Rebecca, was also barren, not for the 25 years like Sarah was, but for 20. And Isaac must have learned from his father's experience, for instead of seeking to provide himself what God had promised by taking a slave wife to produce a rival heir, he would pray. Now, we, to understand the significance of children in this day, we have to remember that God promised victory to Adam and Eve through their offspring. And he promised blessing for all the nations of the world through Abraham's seed. And so the tension of childbirth is a key theme throughout Genesis, right from Eve, even as she mourns the loss of her first two sons and awaits a third son, which she sees as a necessary blessing that must come from God, Genesis 4, 25, saying, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. If salvation was to come through this family line, children were not only a blessing, but a necessity. But in his wisdom... God caused the wombs of the family's women to be closed so that they would not trust in their own strength, but would learn to cast their burdens on the Lord and so be sustained. And so God continually brings His people into this place of total need and total inability to accomplish 
what he has promised so that they will come to trust him. God has already promised offspring for Isaac, just as he had for Abraham, but to pray as they must is to know that life is given as a gift. The point is that God not only promises and provides blessing to his people, but he must provide the recipients of the promise as well. What I mean is there, is, there are no people of God around to bless unless God himself provides them. There are no good people just standing around waiting for God to notice and give them the good things that they deserve. And so for God to keep these promises to a people, he must not only keep the promises, but he must produce the people. And so the first point this morning, number one, is that God sovereignly provides the recipients of the promise. The people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are born of the Spirit. They exist because God brought them into existence as His people. Of His own will, James 1.18, He brought us forth by the Word of God. John writes, John 1.12-13, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. So the recipients of God's promises are produced only by the will of God. What God requires to accomplish all of His purposes, He must provide. There was no life in Rebekah's womb, but God brought the couple to a place of trust through the things they had seen of His goodness and of His faithfulness, even through the family line, and they prayed, recognizing that God was the source of all life. He answered their prayer for Rebecca to conceive. Verse 22. And, and actually, this is a two-part sermon. It became a two-part sermon when I passed eight pages of notes last night. Genesis 25, 22 to 23. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, this oracle of God to Rebekah goes against all conventional wisdom. First of all, Esau should have had preeminence. Declaring that the older would serve the younger went against all cultural norms according to the law of primogenitor. Uh, that's the right of the firstborn. And this, I don't think it can be uh, overstated, was the linchpin of the entire social and legal system of the day. And we'll speak more of this in a minute. But the second thing is that this, this oracle, this prophecy from God makes a profound theological claim. It declares that we do not live in a world where anything is possible and where we can chart our own destinies. It demands a recognition that God is sovereign over our futures. Now, this does not mean that we don't have any freedom Jacob makes many choices throughout his life, as do we. But all of his freedom is bounded by the choices God has already made on his behalf. 
Proverbs 16, 9 says that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. That is, we have the freedom to choose our path, but God ultimately decides where it is that we will end up. When Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, he did not ask Paul whether he would like to be his spokesman. He was told what he would do, and the very next message he received from God was how much he must suffer for the sake of Christ's name. And so in 1 Corinthians 9.16, later Paul is writing that he has nothing to boast about in the fact that he spends his life preaching the gospel because, he says, he has no choice in the matter. He says, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's saying he has no choice whether to preach, only whether he would do so free of charge. He could choose his attitude. He could choose his demeanor, sometimes even his direction. Sometimes Paul is wondering where he should go next and just goes where he thinks he should go. Other times, he is constrained by what God had predetermined for his life and ministry. And so he writes Galatians 1, 15, and 16, He who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. Jesus tells Paul, at, before his conversion, what he is going to do. You will be my messenger. And the very next message he gets is how much this is going to cost him, how much this is going to be a suffering throughout his life. In my own life, I have seen the ways in which I have accidentally made the right choices for all the wrong reasons, <laughs> such as when I... Uh, started seeking to become a pastor, and, and God had turned them for good and used those choices to accomplish His purposes in me. Perhaps more numerous are the times when I have made the wrong choices for the wrong reasons, and having received the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father, I have also seen Him work these things out for His purposes." But I've also seen the direct interference of God in stopping me in my tracks, keeping me from doing what I was doing or heading where I was heading in order to turn me around and save me from destruction just as he did with his apostle. So we have freedom. We are agents of choice, agents of moral choice. The prophetic word here in Genesis tells us that although the Bible consistently refers to us as humans, as agents of choice, moral choice, held accountable for the decisions we make, God has the power to make promises and then to keep them despite any human action. And so before Jacob and Esau are born, God has predetermined something that will happen. Jacob will be chosen. Jacob, uh, Esau, and his family will serve Jacob and his family. And there will be a tension. There will be a 
conflict between these families. God has said this all before it will happen. The next point, and it is a difficult one, is number two, God sovereignly chooses the recipients of the promise. Our text this morning puts me under an obligation, and that is because this is what we're preaching from, I must tell you what the Bible teaches here. And this is concerning the doctrine of election. That is, that God chooses from among the rebellious and sinful human race who He will adopt as His people. Now, the the timing of all my good election jokes has been totally ruined by our bout with COVID a few weeks ago, and so I had to do a complete rewrite. But honestly, whenever we come to a passage that speaks of election, predestination, or the sovereignty of God in granting salvation, I am filled with excitement and fear. It's always a difficult thing to hear from Scripture for many, and it's a topic which causes many modern believers to instantly tune out or to find offense. And so I want to soothe you and assure you that we only want to teach, preach, and believe what Scripture teaches us. Nothing more. Without adding to it any of our own hypotheses or opinions about it. And this is what I will endeavor to do this morning in as much as the Holy Spirit gives me the ability. When speaking of the doctrines of grace, uh, many mature believers bring a significant amount of baggage to the conversation, as well as a number of different assumptions. And so whenever I speak of God's choice in salvation, there are any number of additional beliefs which are instantly grouped in with this doctrine, and I hope that you can avoid that this morning. I remember uh, the very first time I dared to read Romans 9 at a Bible study. I I literally opened the passage and read it out to the group, and I was instantly and angrily labeled a Calvinist, as though only Calvinists are allowed to read that part of the Bible. While that is not strictly true, the, the Calvinists won't have me, I've come to realize that the average Christian today has no idea what that word means. And so I've had people instantly assume that it means people who don't believe in prayer or evangelism or striving for holiness, all of which are completely untrue of genuine Calvinists. And on the other hand, I've had many Christians tell me that they don't believe in predestination because they are Arminian, which tells me that they have no idea what that word means either. Now, these terms are not important for our purposes this morning. I'm only speaking to those who use them. Christians must believe the Bible. Can we agree with that? And the Bible teaches us that God, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, declares the end from the beginning, accomplishing all of His purposes through what He has determined before the foundations of the world. Romans 8, 29 and then 30, and Ephesians 1, 5 and then 11, all specifically use the word predestined, that is, determined beforehand, when speaking about how God chose His people for adoption before the world began. 
This is, this is not a controversial thing to say because it's what the Bible says. If the Bible says four times God predestines us, how many of you know we don't have a choice whether to say God predestines us? We know that what the Bible says is true. Now, how we understand that, how we fit that together with other parts of the Bible, there's all sorts of different traditions and all sorts of different ways of thinking about it, hypotheses and opinions, and we want to stay right away from all of that. But we want to believe what the Bible says is true. And the Bible says that God predestines those He's saving. That doesn't make us Calvinists. It doesn't make us Arminian. It doesn't, it means that we are Bible-believing Christians when we believe what the Bible says four different times. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Jesus told His disciples, John 15, 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So while there has been all these various historic hypotheses and theological systems that try to explain exactly how God goes about choosing His people, there is no Christian doctrine that denies predestination outright. In fact, God's sovereignty in choosing who will belong to Him as His people is a theme that stretches throughout the whole Bible, and especially in Genesis, where the book begins and ends along with every single narrative in between with God choosing a people for himself. We can readily identify this in Genesis 4, 4 and 5, when God had regard for Abel and his offering, but no regard for Cain and his. We can see this choosing continue in the lines of Cain and of Seth, and God later extending favor to Noah from among all of rebellious humanity, rescuing his family alone from the flood. Again, God chooses Abraham from among all the pagan nations to be his own, to create from him a people for his own possession. He rejects Abraham's eldest son, Ishmael, in favor of the son not yet born, Isaac. And now with Isaac's twins, God chooses Jacob, later, later stating Malachi 1, 2, and 3, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated which essentially means Jacob I have chosen, but Esau I have not chosen. What makes this narrative the centerpiece for the doctrine of election, the passage quoted even in the New Testament when explaining God's action in choosing His people, is that God chooses Jacob over his elder brother, Romans 9-11, even though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. You see, we might read between the lines in the other examples of God's choice. We may say that God chose Abel because he earned his favor. We might reverse the statements of Scripture and say Noah was a righteous man and that is why he was favored. 
We might believe that Abraham was the most worthy, the most deserving candidate for God's blessing, and that is why God chose him and his family from among the pagan nations. Now, Scripture doesn't say any of that, but people quite often read between the lines what they believe. But with Jacob and Esau, there can be no explanation of Jacob's election based on his morality or his behavior. He did not bring the proper offering or make the right choice. Neither had Esau disqualified himself by personal rebellion or refusing to trust or obey or have the faith that he should. Romans 9, 10 to 13, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, when speaking of election and predestination, we do not want to state more than we can possibly know. This is a, a doctrine on which Christians must be incredibly careful. I have all sorts of ideas. I have a whole system worked out in my mind about how this all makes sense with every other part of the Bible. I do. I, I, I hold it very easily because I spent five years processing exactly how the whole Bible makes sense regarding these statements, but I can't teach you any of them. They could be totally erroneous. That's just how I've made peace with it. We can only teach and preach, and we must believe as Christians what the Bible says. Nothing more, nothing less. So we do not want to state more than we can possibly know, neither do we want to disregard what Scripture has made perfectly clear for our edification and for the building of our faith. And so I can say to you with confidence that we know that God chooses who will belong to Him. That is made abundantly clear from nearly every book of the Bible and is stated clearly from Jesus' own mouth. Adding to that, we now know that the choice of Jacob over Esau, or from this choice of Jacob over Esau, sorry, that this election is what we call unconditional. That is, it is not based on the condition of anything that they have done. Seeing that God made his choice known to Rebekah before the twins were even born. So we're, we're going to be very careful here as we process election. We know it's a thing because the Bible tells us a myriad of times and four times specifically with the word predestination that God predestines those he's saving. We don't want to add to that other than what the Scriptures add to it. So the, the very next thing that we're adding to that now is based on this passage. This is why the New Testament quotes this passage so often, is because we can't possibly read between the lines and add things that aren't there, like we could possibly with some of these other stories. This one makes it abundantly clear. There was nothing that they had done. This was not based on their morality. It was not based on their works. So this is the second thing we're going to add. There is an election, a choice of God to salvation. Next, we want to add unconditional election, which is, is clearly biblical. It is not conditional on their choice or morality or works. Now, you might say, maybe God made his choice based on his foreknowledge. That is, his knowledge of what they would do someday. That's a, a, an interesting theory. But the problem with that theory is that it is the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us. 
The foundational things we know for certain about adoption into God's family is that it is predestined, that is predetermined by God, and secondly, that it is not because of works, but because of Him who calls, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So we maybe don't know why God chooses who He chooses, or how, or what the process is. I don't know anything about that. I can tell you for certain that it is not because of works, so that no one can boast. And so, it's impossible for me to answer all the questions surrounding this doctrine, but the safest answer to the question, why does God choose the way He does, is in order to fulfill His own purposes. That is the repeated refrain of the Bible when talking about why God does these things. He has purposes, and He's going to fulfill them. He has spoken, and He will bring it to pass. He has promised, and He will fulfill all His promises. Even if the entire human race were to rise up in rebellion, oh wait, that happened. Even if the entire human race was to rise up in rebellion against Him, He would have His way. And this is exactly what Scripture is revealing to us. We know that God elects in order to fulfill His own purposes, and we know from Scripture which reason is the farthest from the truth? And that is that this election is absolutely not based on the works of the one who was called. So I don't know anything about why God does things the way he does. I can't explain that to you. I have hypotheses. I have opinions. The only thing I can say to you with certainty is it is not because of works. Because that's what the Bible tells us. Not the works they had done, not the works they might do someday, but because of God who calls. Romans 9, 14 to 16. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? See, Paul, when he begins to explain this in Romans 9, he already knows how we're going to respond to this. If you respond to what I've said, that wouldn't be just perfect. You you have understood exactly what the Bible has taught. If you have come to the exact part that Paul has expected, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You have tracked appropriately with this message. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Whatever we have to say about it, God is not unjust to choose to show mercy and compassion to some. For some to receive as a free gift what none can ever deserve is not injustice, but a great mercy from God. A mercy granted according to God's righteous choice, which does not at all depend on human will or works. There's, this took me five years to be comfortable with. And, and I welcome you to come to me or any of the other elders and just keep on having this conversation. And, and hopefully we will restrain ourselves from sharing too much of our systems of how we think it works and just all agree to believe what the Bible says even if we have to hold it in tension. But as we continue to carefully unpack what can be clearly shown from this text regarding election, there are two more solid truths that can be seen here. One uh, which will end with today, and another which is closely related, and we will look at 
in the second sermon on this passage, God willing, next week. But consistent with the theme in Genesis, here God chooses the younger son over the older, upsetting the natural order of society and the law of primogenitor. Uh, Primogenitor, or the, the right of the firstborn son, is, like I said, the glue that held the ancient society together. It was every ruler's claim to their throne. That is, every ruler would say, I have the right to rule because of the birth order. This is my right as firstborn son. My brothers, they don't have this right. My sisters, their sisters, they couldn't. In this day, I'm not saying that's true. In this day, this was the law. And it told everyone who was supposed to be the ruler, and it was the basis of every man's claim to his land and his possessions. Everyone had received their land from their father. And the portion of land they received was based on their birth order. Therefore, what I possess in that era, we have to understand this, everything I have was not based on whether I got an education and got a good job or whether I've been a hard worker and saved my money. Every possession was based on what was my birth order. And so consistent with the theme of Genesis, this is always upset the revelation to Je- Rebecca, sorry, the revelation to Rebecca provides yet another in a long list through Genesis where God grants favor to the younger son. Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Joseph over his brothers, and finally at the end, Ephraim over Manasseh. Now, I had said that Genesis starts and ends with such choosing, and I see this borne out at the very beginning in the way God elevates the least and last of his creation. The late-born dirt creature, Adam, is not the most glamorous of God's creatures. Remember, he has already created the sun, moon, and stars, the heavenly beings. He has created uh, what the Bible describes as the most magnificent beings watching over the heavens. And the last-born is this creature he puts together from dirt and calls him earthling or dirt creature. depends on how you want to translate it. I just love earthling because of my sci-fi enjoyment. And I love dirt creature because that's so derogatory. He calls him dirt man. That's his name. He's the last born. He's formed from the worst stuff of least value. And God elevates this least and last of his creation, the late-born Adam, and grants him rulership and dominion over all the earth and its citizens, over every living thing that moves. God's grace, God's election, choosing what would not naturally be chosen, choosing what we in our human thinking would never pick. Who should rule and reign over the earth? Maybe these glorious, glamorous, ultra-powerful angels. Maybe these wonderful and powerful animals. No, the dirt guy. Let's use him. And we have to understand, in that day, not only was primogenitor the foundation of all society, but it was thought that the firstborn was equipped and blessed to rule. So it was not only their right as a firstborn, but it was also their due as the matchless specimen among their brothers. It wasn't just that, hey, let's have an arbitrary thing where the firstborn is supposed to get the most of the inheritance of the firstborn is supposed to rule. That wasn't, that wasn't it. They literally thought that the firstborn was better. Now, I'm a firstborn son. I think that we should all believe that. <laughs> just kidding. But, but this, is, this was the thought. He's got all, like, whatever those parents had, 
to put into that child, they used all the best stuff at the start. I'm, I'm not, this is not conjecture. This is what they believed. They, they, they believed that the firstborn was better. It was not only his right, but it was his due. We see this from the beginning in Genesis 4 where the birth of Cain is celebrated by his parents. Well, the birth of Abel is listed as kind of an afterthought. The firstborn was vital, cherished, celebrated. Other sons were somewhat less important. Even the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17, obligated fathers to acknowledge their firstborn as the principal heir and grant them for an inheritance twice as much land and possessions as the other sons would receive. So you have to think, the whole socioeconomic system is based on birth order. If I'm the firstborn son of a firstborn son of a firstborn son of a firstborn son, I have a lot more money and land than you do. Because the firstborn son is going to continue to get the lion's share of the inheritance. In the case of Jacob and Esau, two-thirds. And so the whole, the whole society was gathered around this and the thought about who was even deserving to rule. And so in consistently choosing the younger, God is making a powerful statement, not only of his authority to override all human institutions, but that he is intentionally choosing the lesser, the inferior, the weak, to carry out his purposes so that he would get all the glory for what he has accomplished in them. God did not choose Jacob because he was better than Esau. He didn't choose Jacob because he was greater than Esau. He didn't choose Jacob because he was more moral than Esau. He chose him because he was categorically less. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. But consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we know clearly from Scripture, without question, that salvation, adoption as God's children, is the result of His choosing. And we know that that election is unconditional. That is, it is not because of our works, but because of His choice. And now we should see that there is some method revealed about His choosing. He chooses the foolish, the weak, the lowly and despised, so that their only boasting will be in Christ. If you are a believer today, if you are called by God by His unconditional election, we know that it is because you are not one of the ones who would have made it on your own. I'm not the guy that God just had to have on His team. I'm the guy that was hopeless and helpless. The worst of us. When I think back to my salvation, I just can't think of anyone who deserved God's salvation less. I can't. 
Not only was I utterly in sin, but I was so proud. I thought I was so good. I thought I had accomplished so much. And God in his mercy took the worst of us. Blessed his socks off. Loved him unconditionally. Adopted him as a son. If you want to know the love of God. Deeply. If you want to know the mercy of God. Deeply. You must embrace what the Bible teaches about salvation. You have not plumbed the depths of the gospel until you have understood that the fact that God has brought you to faith is because you were the worst, the lowest, the one who never possibly could have made it on their own. Sorry. The method of God's choosing, all we know about it. I, I would say, I, I, I might, I don't want to overspeak. All I know for sure about God's choosing is it's not because of works and because he chooses the weak, chooses the lesser. Everything else is maybe conjecture, hypothesis, but we know these things from Scripture. Believers are the ones who know with a certainty that we never could have accomplished anything of salvation for ourselves. So it doesn't matter if there's a system you like more than another. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Calvinist or an Arminian. It doesn't matter what system you prefer for explaining all these things. Here's what makes, here's how I identify a Christian. Who saved you? God saved you? Amen. Let's agree. Let's believe that God saved us because we did not save ourselves. Scripture has made that clear. Jesus said, Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This was not to say that there were some righteous and some were not but that those who Jesus was saving were those who knew their need. Only the hopeless are helped. If you are here this morning and you despair of your own ability to serve God, if you recognize that you are hopeless and helpless to live as he has commanded, you're in the right place. God calls the helpless he calls the second class, the second sons, and the daughters, those without strength, so that he might show his power in our weakness. And we will be utterly humiliated and fully loved when we recognize that this is the only way salvation comes to men, is when our full trust is in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Let's pray. Excuse me, I'm blubbering idiot here. God, we thank you so much for your word, which humbles us and continually brings us to reliance upon you. God, I'm so thankful 
that you have saved me. I am so thankful for my brothers and sisters here in this room who you have saved despite how much they suck. Lord, we were not those who were strong and wise and powerful, but we are those who you chose to glorify yourself through by saving the worst and the least that in our weakness you would be shown strong. And so, Lord, I pray that the worship of our lives and the way we live would be in response to the incredible mercy you have shown. I pray that as we gather to sing and come to your word, that it would be informed by the miracle of mercy for those who deserved it not. I pray that you who have promised to elevate us to the status of your firstborn son would also have the humility of those who know it is none of our work but your work alone. We could not possibly be those who glorify you with such an incredible status if we did not also know our complete unworthiness for it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be beautified, that we would be sanctified, that people would see the love that we have and honor you because of the transformation you will accomplish in us as we begin to rely wholly on you for our salvation. We ask this all for the fame and glory of Christ in this world. Amen.